You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. Russia still wants the whole of Ukraine. The warning from the NATO Secretary General comes as foreign ministers meet this hour. They will hear a singular and familiar message from Ukraine. Send more help. I came to Brussels to participate in the NATO ministerial and to hold bilateral meetings with allies. My agenda is very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons and weapons. And we'll be hearing from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg again this hour, and we will bring that to you live. It comes as Russia's advance concentrates on the east of the nation and as Russian forces fully withdraw from areas near Kiev and Chernihiv, according to a senior U.S. defense official. But as the Russian forces pull back, more atrocities emerge. At least two people lost their lives. Five others were hurt after a humanitarian distribution hub was targeted in the Donetsk town of Vuldar. That, according to Ukrainian military officials. We warn you, what you're about to see is graphic video of a murder on a highway in western Kiev. Maxim Ivenko was gunned down in cold blood even as he raised his hands in surrender. His wife, Senya, was also killed. The family confirmed their identities to CNN. This evidence of war crimes was captured by a drone, technology that's playing an increasing role in the conflict, as Fred Pleitgen reports. Please be careful, just move, move, move from the road. It's like a scene from the gates of hell. The dead lay strewn across this highway west of Kiev some still next to the wreckage of their vehicles as the dogs roam around looking to scavenge. This is what Russian forces left behind when they retreated from here. They organized ambush over there. Where are we going right now? Alexander Radzichovsky tells me these were civilians gunned down from this position where the Russians had placed a tank. And you can see it's actually building the shooting zone. Mm. You see? And these cars, look, they're sort of in line. Mm. There is no cars here because they will not let them come. They just shoot as soon as they approach. The Russian government denies targeting civilians. They call such allegations, quote, fake and propaganda. But Alexander is part of a drone unit and they filmed one incident. It was March 7th when the Russians were still in full control of this area and a group of cars was driving down the highway. They turned around after apparently taking fire from the tank position. This car stops and the driver gets out. Then this. He's raised his head above his head, and in this moment he was shot by on this place. Two people were killed that day, Maxim Iovenko and his wife Ksenia, who was also sitting in the vehicle. The family has confirmed the identities to CNN. After the incident, the drone filmed Russian troops getting two further people out of the car and taking them away. It was the couple's six-year-old son and a family friend traveling with them, the relatives confirmed. Both were later released by the Russians. The soldiers then search Maxim's body and drag him away. This incident, both traumatizing and motivating for Alexander's drone unit. In normal life before the war, we were civilians who like to fly drones around casually and just like make a nice video, YouTube videos. But when the war began, we become actually vital part of the, of the, of the, of the resistance. Alexander sent us hours of video showing his team scoping out Russian vehicles, even finding them when they're hidden and almost impossible to spot, and then helping the Ukrainians hit them. 
we are eyes. We call eyes because with eyes you can see and you can report. And as soon as you see, you can conduct strikes, artillery, uh, air strikes. How long does it take to get your information to the right places to then be able to act on the intelligence that you provide? In good time, it's about a matter of minutes. And sometimes a little mosquito can take out a whole herd of elephants. This is drone footage of Alexander's unit searching for a massive column of Russian tanks and armored vehicles. And this is that column after the drones found it. Alexander tells me units like his played a major role fending off Russian troops despite the Ukrainians being vastly outgunned. We're agile as a territorial defense. We can, oh, we don't want to just like, it's, it's suicide damage, we need to go. But the army, they have to stay. They order to stay, they stay. They die, but they stay and they hold in this ground. Nobody knows how many Russians died here, but the group says it was many, taken out with the help of a band of amateur drone pilots looking to defend their homeland. Fred Pleitkin, CNN, Mila, Ukraine. Meanwhile, curfews have been announced around Bucha as it becomes clear that Russian troops left behind a deadly legacy. Officials say more than 1,500 pieces of unexploded ordnance were found on Wednesday. Phil Black joins us now from Lviv. Phil, so beyond the human atrocities and the devastation of infrastructure and buildings, the city is effectively booby-trapped too. Yeah, that's right, Julie. We heard reports about this from the very earliest moments of Russia's withdrawal from these from these areas. Mines is one thing, but other explosives, booby traps, even bodies were said to be uh, wired with explosives to be disturbed, uh, to be detonated uh, when disturbed. Uh, and yeah, there's apparently vast numbers of these things through the region. That 1500 number that you mentioned, that applies just to the Kiev region itself. And as the Ukrainian authorities point out, the Russians have pulled out a much wider stretch of territory. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of time uh, to go through and make sure that every house, every street, every yard, it's all safe for people to return. And so that's why people are still being told to stay away. That's why we are told that's the primary reason why uh, a curfew is being enforced. There's another reason too, uh, and that is because we are told that people have returned to Bucha not because they live in these homes, but because they are looting some of these homes. Julia. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, whether you're going back there for simply just wanting to return or, or otherwise. Um, clearly, we're seeing an escalation of violence as anticipated in the east and southern parts of the country too, Phil. But I want to talk about what the deputy prime minister said, and that was the establishing of 10 evacuation corridors, including one in Mariupol, I believe, too. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so 10 is the number of, of the daily corridors. These corridors are worked out via negotiations between the two sides. It has to be via mutual agreement because they tend to travel through Russian-controlled territory into Ukrainian-controlled territory. And on days like this, what it means is you might get 5,000 people or more being able to make their own way out of these very intense, dangerous places to safety uh, on, within Ukrainian-controlled territory. But there's still a fundamental flaw in these systems, and particularly when it comes to Mariupol, the Russians are not letting vehicles and aid go the other way. So we've heard for much of this week how the Red Cross has been trying to get a convoy of vehicles into Mariupol, uh, first of all to deliver aid, because the situation, the humanitarian situation there is so dire, but also to bring out people in buses who don't have their own private means of transportation. And that is the point that the Russians repeatedly, when they get there, when these, when these aid convoys get there on the ground, they, they block their access, even though 
according to the Red Cross, according to Ukrainian officials, the Russian leadership has authorized these movements. What they're coming up against is checkpoints on the ground that simply will not let them in. And that is undoubtedly having an impact on the humanitarian situation in Mariupol in, in particular. Yeah, and the numbers that are getting out dwarfed by those that, that remain in those kind of challenging conditions, desperate conditions. Phil, good to have you with us. Thank you. Phil Black there in Lviv. To Brussels now. NATO foreign ministers have just finished a meeting on Ukraine and discussed whether to expand military aid. Ukraine's foreign minister is calling on the alliance to supply more weapons. Nick Robertson joins us live from NATO headquarters. Nikki made the message very clear and we played it earlier. Weapons, weapons, weapons. After a, a week of witnessing the atrocities in cities like Bucha, is there the desire, the will, the determination to provide more? There is. Uh, the question is what? Uh, we know that NATO has turned down previous requests from Ukraine to supply it with fighter jets, which would give it greater dominance in the skies. Uh, NATO preferring to look at giving surface-to-air missiles, uh, recently providing some quite sophisticated high-tech versions, the British doing that, um, and also providing more sophisticated surface-to-air weaponry. But what they're looking at doing now at NATO, and, and as best we know at the moment, um, that the foreign ministers were due to have wrapped about now, um, but as best we know at the moment, here on the ground at least, um, they may still be talking. Uh, they have Some foreign ministers have come out. Uh, the uh, Norwegian foreign minister was up here a few minutes ago. However, um, it seems that some conversations are still ongoing. Uh, and I think that speaks to this tension, internal tension at NATO, over, over what can be supplied. Ukraine is going into a much harder phase of the war coming up. That's what's expected. Longer and tougher because Russia has regrouped. It will be less overextended. It will offer less easy targets. Uh, so the talk is of providing tanks, of providing armoured vehicles. We know that the Australians are going to provide armoured vehicles. That will allow the Ukrainians to get their infantry closer to the front lines and, and be less in harm's way. And that's important for the, for the battles where they won't be able to perhaps sneak up and pick off uh, Russian tanks and armour uh, from, from the roadside so readily as they did near Kiev. Also, the supply lines, logistics, that's a very important part of sustaining the war and that's something else that NATO is looking at, coordinating, collaborating with each other and most importantly, trying to find consensus on. And that consensus issue, I think, is where they're at at the moment, trying to reach that final agreement. Nick, thank you so much for that update there. And we'll continue to watch for the remaining ministers that continue to talk uh, to your point and see perhaps what they say uh, as they exit to Nick Robertson. Thank you for that. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. Heavy fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces is now being reported in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. A full-blown ground war in the east now appears to be underway, although NATO officials meeting in Brussels today believe Russian President Putin still has his eyes on capturing the whole of Ukraine. Those comments from the NATO Secretary General, of course. Now, the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, said a new round of sanctions punishing Putin for the invasion, as well as atrocities being uncovered in Bucha and elsewhere, could be announced by the end of the week. The EU is continuing to discuss new energy sanctions on Moscow, with officials reportedly targeting mid-August as the date to completely phase out imports of Russian coal. The EU also greenlighting fresh aid to businesses hard hit by the Ukraine war. 
It will let member states compensate firms for up to 30% of their energy costs and will allow further state support for companies too. The EU, however, warning the amounts will be nowhere near the aid provided during the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. Margrethe Vestager joins us now. She's the Executive Vice President of the European Commission and the European Commissioner for Competition 2. Fantastic to have you on the show as always. You're also Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. You're also the co-lead for the long-term strategy, in particular reducing strategic dependencies, which captures my attention and I think everybody else's in light of what we're seeing. Nothing more pivotal at this moment than reducing European reliance on Russian oil and gas. Joseph Borrell said this week that 35 billion euros has been provided to Russia for energy supplies since this invasion began. I think whether you're a leader or a consumer, that number is is galling. It's heartbreaking. Yes, uh, it is. Um, looking at the results of uh, of the Russian brutality on ground, uh, no, nothing can answer that, uh, except of course that those responsible are, are put to justice. So on ground now, uh, the Ukrainians, uh, with assistance uh, from us, among others. Uh, are collecting the evidence uh, of these war crimes. Uh, But we will continue uh, to work on sanctions and and nothing uh, is off the table. Should EU citizens be viewing that money as as directly financing this war? Every time we leave a light on, for example, we needlessly waste energy. We're, We're contributing to European vulnerability. I think that that is really difficult to bear. Uh, but I do take your point that everyone can do something. You know, not everyone can house a, a Ukrainian uh, mother and her children, uh, but everyone can, you know, go slower on the highway or cut their showers in two or make sure that the light is, uh, is turned off. Everyone can contribute here. Of course, systemically, it's really important that uh, the union that I work in and every member state do their part, but every citizen can do something to help cut the financing of this war. It's, I think it's such an important message to send. I know the aim is to reduce the alliance across the EU by near 80%, just under uh, by the year end, which I think would be incredibly swift and ambitious, and clearly there are sceptics. Has the Commission modelled what the impact would be of a, of a swifter ban? Well, we haven't done yet. Uh, yet we're in the process of uh, of doing so. We think that by the end of the year we can have decreased decreased our dependency on gas with two thirds. That's really ambitious, uh, and it takes, of course, a number of of, uh, of uh, suppliers to help out uh, with uh, liquefied gas for much more renewable to kick in our grid much faster. But as said, also for for every citizen uh, to pay their uh, to pay their part. Uh, it can be done even faster, and, and we're in the processing, process of, uh, of modeling how that will happen. But obviously, it will not come without effect. Uh, also, on our side, I think everyone should be absolutely clear about it. But this is a global situation. Uh, the fallout of this war uh, may be food shortages in, in a number of countries in, in northern uh, Africa. So I think it's really important that everyone realizes that we have to do something together. And one of the things I'm really grateful of is the cooperation between the EU and the US on the sanctions, because that is what drives uh, this economic response to the war. 
Commissioner, you understand the power of lobbyists, I think, better than most people in places like Brussels or in Washington, D.C., to, to, your, to your bigger point there. There are those that say if the lobbyists weren't so powerful at this moment, that would also play a role and enable this timeline to be reduced. What's your response to that? I think it's, uh, it's our responsibility in, in leadership uh, to see through what is wasted interest. Hmm. What, what, what is it that we are being presented with that just want to prolong uh, a very good business? And what is real concerns uh, about a fallout uh, on ground that cannot be mended uh, or remedied? So I think it's really important now that leaders come together uh, seek as much information as possible and then pull through to make sure that we cut the economic uh, ties that finances the atrocities that we see on ground. It makes sense. You've also provided support, loosened state aid rules to allow nations, as I mentioned in the introduction, to provide a degree of financial support. The message has been, look, it's more targeted. It's not the kind of grand scale support that was provided during the pandemic. Do you stand ready, though, to, to provide looser conditions to allow more should it be required? Yes, we will follow the situation on ground as it develops. Uh, in the pandemic, you know, uh, governments would tell businesses to close their door uh, for customers to stay at home. Completely unprecedented situation. Blanket support was needed for businesses to hibernate. Then we saw the effects uh, of the recovery uh, coming about very strongly before the war. Now, with the energy crisis and the war, you see many businesses being affected by higher energy prices and, of course, a number of businesses being, uh, being hit by sort of the reverse uh, effect of sanctions. So we follow very closely what, is the needs, uh, what are the needs uh, on ground in order to make sure that we can accommodate while maintaining, of course, uh, that we have kind of a level playing field so every member state can see themselves uh, in what we're doing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> back to the traditional playbook, which is competition concerns, particularly where you've got perhaps businesses, nations working together at this stage, you can maintain a focus on that? Or does that sort of at some degree go out the window in, in a crisis situation like this? I think it's, it's really important both to have sort of a short term and a long term perspective uh, at the same time, mm. because eventually we'll have to recover. Uh, there needs to be a rebuild. Uh, at some time, I don't know when, the war will be over. And we will need uh, to produce new prosperity, new, uh, new uh, wealth uh, in order to be able to, to rebuild. And in order to do that, uh, we need a single market that works. Uh, we need global trade uh, for, for, for all what that is worth uh, right now. Uh, we need the supply chains to work. And I think it's important uh, to think about both at the same time. But we can do so much more. Uh, on a short-term basis without sacrificing a future that will finance uh, the recovery and, and the rebuilding uh, also of Ukraine. You know, it's fascinating. It's very difficult to see so far into that future, as you're alluding to there. But it, this war is exacerbating dividing lines between big nations or collections of nations around the world, China, India, the EU, the United States. Um, and it's a flexing of power of the muscle for a financial system that's oiled by, by the US dollar. Do you think we look back on this as a, a pivot point where we see an acceleration of the strategic autonomy that Emmanuel Macron, President Emmanuel Macron talks about a lot, because that would have devastating consequences for global issues like climate change, for example, like poverty, like inequality. Do we look back on this as a 
a desperately bad pivot point? Well, you know, I thought that, that the fall of the Berlin Wall and the unification of Germany and, and Europe would be, you know, the biggest things that I would ever experience in my lifetime. But I think this will be much bigger, only deeply, deeply negative. Uh, the European Union is changing by the hour, member states coming together. Uh, the relationship we have with the U.S. in this is, is unprecedented. It is strong, it is direct, uh, it is hands-on. Uh, I think it's important for, for the rest of, uh, of countries, uh, we have a lot of support in the Security Council, but also for others, to see that this is a global situation. Because when you have the Russians attacking tractors in the fields, uh, burning grains that were supposed to be sowed in the coming weeks, well, then you also see that this is targeting uh, people who need bread in, in North uh, African uh, countries. Uh, so the fallout of this war is not a European thing. It's a global matter. Margrethe Vestager, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Executive Vice President of the European Commission and the European Commissioner for Competition. Now, NATO foreign ministers have just concluded their meeting in Brussels as evidence of Russian atrocities mount in Ukraine. As the meeting began, the nation's foreign minister urged NATO to provide more weapons. And as the EU discusses a new round of sanctions, one nation is making a bold decision. Estonia which shares a border with Russia, saying it will stop buying gas from its neighbour. Joining us now is Estonia's Foreign Minister, Eva Maria Limits. Eva Maria, Foreign Minister, fantastic to have you on the show with us. A bold move, announcing an end to gas imports from Russia. Can you give us a timeline? How quickly can you do this? For us, of course, it is uh, very important that we continue to have uh, our united approach with regard to sanctions. And I'm uh, really proud about the uh, union uh, because uh, this week we see another uh, package of sanctions coming and there is more and more countries coming together and uh, asking for stronger uh, sanctions from the EU side. So we continue to go forward to put political pressure to Russia to end this uh, unjustified and unprovoked war in Ukraine. How quickly can you do it? We are prepared to uh, to uh, to do it as uh, uh, within this year, definitely. But we understand that some countries have uh, do they do need. They do need a longer time, but this is something that uh, we uh, are going, currently discussing also together with the European Commission, how Commission can help with our energy security. And uh, this is something that will end soon the uh, money flows from Europe to Russia. Is it frustrating to you, Foreign Minister? I'm sure you just heard the conversation that I was having there with the Competition Commissioner. 35 billion euros being paid to Russia by EU nations just in the past five to six weeks? This is, of course, uh, unfortunate to see because when we compare it to the uh, financial support that we have given to Ukraine at the same time, then this number is unproportionately big. So therefore, these uh, steps that we are currently putting forward within the European Union are very important and uh, we really must uh, end this uh, financial inflow to, to Russia so that Russia cannot finance its, its war in Ukraine any longer. Because uh, what we saw, all these pictures, what we saw over the weekend with regard to massive killings of civilians in, in, in Bucha, uh, this, uh, 
these facts have uh, absolutely changed the public opinion in our societies and because of that we go quickly forward with these decisions to end financial flows to Russia. Foreign Minister, you raise a very important point. The um, President Zelensky of Ukraine, when he was speaking about those atrocities, called it genocide. Are those kind of words being discussed among the ministers today? Do you see this as genocide? All these um, uh, massive killings of civilians, uh, rape, uh, sexual violence against uh, children, women, these go uh, much beyond what we can bear. And of course, we must all come together to end these uh, violations in, in Ukraine. I think that it does not matter that much how we call it, whether we call them war crimes or genocide. We have seen that uh, village by village, people are killed in Ukraine. And international community, of course, must together to support uh, the end of this war. And of course, at the same time, we must uh, continue to document all the uh, um, all these uh, war crimes on the ground and all the perpetrators must be taken into the court for these actions. There should be no, uh, there must be, these people must be accountable for their actions. Foreign Minister, another great point you raise that definitions don't matter in the short term when actions and responses matter more. What was discussed with the foreign ministers today and will the provision of weapons, greater weapons, and the kind of weapons that, that Ukraine is asking for, be it tanks or artillery weapons, be provided. Is there greater commitment in light of what we've seen this week to provide those kind of weaponry? After these very unfortunate uh, uh, pictures of atrocities that we saw, of course, uh, we continue to discuss uh, how we can respond to uh, Kuleba's request, uh, also President Zelensky's request, with regard to delivery of weapons. And here, different countries have different perspective, uh, different uh, possibilities to provide additional support uh, to Ukraine. From our perspective, of course, we must continue to give a political, economic, humanitarian, but also defensive support uh, to Ukraine and Estonia itself has uh, delivered so far uh, military equipment for 220 million of euros per capita. We are in the third place at the moment. So uh, we really hope that uh, uh, we continue the same way because Ukrainian, Ukrainians need our support to defend their country, their people, but also uh, the uh, uh, democratic values for which they are standing for at the moment in their country. 220 million euros of, of weaponry and aid in a country of 1.3 million people. I think the argument there that, that I'll make for you is that bigger nations, richer nations, in fact, in Europe can do more at this moment. I want to get back to what we were discussing with the payments for oil and gas energy supplies. Your prime minister has suggested that some of that money, that money, in fact, all of it should go into an escrow account. And some of that money could be used to help Ukraine rebuild. I know this was discussed among the leaders. Is there a commitment? Can you reach a deal between the nations of the EU to agree to do that? Or are some nations resisting? Uh, yes, uh, what we see at the moment in Ukraine, uh, that uh, there are destroyed cities, uh, uh, the 
And of course, uh, as we have seen, uh, Russia bombing all the cities, then Russia must be taken accountable for these uh, damages in Ukraine. And therefore, we have suggested to make this escrow account so that part of the gas payments or oil payments go to Russia, but other parts go to a special fund. And from this fund, we could um, continue to finance uh, rebuilding Ukraine, because uh, it is very important to think also uh, about the future, how we can rebuild Ukraine and also that Russia is accountable for these damages and must also to help to rebuild this. Can you get an agreement with the EU leaders to do that, to use some this of the energy that, money uh, we to we continue rebuild? to this. This is something that we continue to discuss on upcoming mon- Monday. We are having another um, foreign ministers' councils and, of course, this uh, uh, Ukraine uh, as a whole, but also this continues to be on our table. And we, I hope that we will find solution how Russia is uh, contributing to rebuilding Ukraine. Foreign Minister, one more question. The UK's top diplomat to NATO said something today that caught my attention. And it ties to Estonia's decision to close the Russian consulate. She said, the age of engagement with Russia is over. Do you agree with that? Yes, after we have seen that uh, Russia has uh, started this unjustified and unprovoked uh, war in Ukraine, of course we are uh, very much agreeing that we must continue to isolate uh, Russia politically uh, because it is, uh, of course, not appropriate to uh, speak about developing bilateral relations at the moment with Russia. And uh, therefore we also decided to narrow our bilateral relations and also closed two consulates in Estonia because of that. So diplomacy won't work? At the moment, yes, we have seen that Russia has not been interested in diplomacy because we had all the channels open when we recall our dialogue in the beginning of the year. But in spite of this, Russia started this unjustified war in Ukraine. Foreign Minister of Estonia, Eva Marie Limits, thank you so much for your time today. Now, with Russian forces turning their focus on eastern Ukraine, officials are rushing to get civilians out of the area. CNN's Ivan Watson reports from onboard a train that's carrying people to safety. To explain where I am, I'm on an evacuation train. So this is loaded with about Uh, 1,100 passengers, all evacuees who are traveling for free from eastern Ukraine, uh, and they'll be traveling for about 24 hours total to Lviv, uh, to safety. So the people here have come, I've spoken to some of them from, from Kharkiv in the north, from Mariupol in the southeast, and from the areas around Zaporozhye, one woman weep crying, telling me that her village was being um, hit daily by Russian artillery. I'm just going to take you in a little bit here. So uh, this train is not as packed as the trains were about a month ago with uh, crowds at the train stations, but it's still a vital transport link. The Ukrainian government says about 50% of the country's passengers were moving on the railroad system 
uh, before the war started, so it's still very, very important. The uh, government in the east of the country, it's Russian military is destroying railroad links, uh, which again serve this vital purpose. But this train is full of passengers. It will pick up more people, and it will continue on its 24-hour journey to to take this this kind of precious human cargo uh, to safer parts of the country. But we saw people uh, emotionally saying goodbye to their loved ones on a platform. Uh, I've spoken to a woman who left her husband and mother-in-law behind in her village that was being uh, bombed every day. Uh, and, and this is just part of now daily life since Russia invaded Ukraine. Ivan Watson there. We're going to take a break. Still to come. Millions displaced by war and millions more in urgent need of aid inside Ukraine. More on the humanitarian crisis after this. Welcome back. Millions have fled Ukraine since the start of the invasion, but more internally displaced people are waiting in towns along the border. They're now faced with the difficult decision to either build a new life abroad or return to what's left in their country. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports. The convoy gets loaded up several times a week. Workers with Hungarian Baptist aid making the several hour drive from Budapest, destination western Ukraine. Today, they're headed to Berehova, a quaint town just across the border that's become a magnet for Ukrainians fleeing the war. Upon arrival, supplies unloaded by some of the kids staying at this shelter, what used to be a school. Inside classrooms, bunk beds, replaced desks, and photos of former students hang on the wall above the tiny shoes of the kids staying in the room today, like little Yeva and her mom, Diana. They fled Kyiv a few weeks ago, leaving behind her husband to fight the Russians. She says, we stood there and cried at the train station. My daughter was so mad at him, she thought he was leaving us. He said, Yeva, come give me a kiss, but she wouldn't. Yeva just too young to understand the sacrifice her dad is making, like so many other children here, scarred by the war. Even in this safe place, air raid sirens still go off. So down here in the school's basement, they're using this as a bomb shelter, and the school's director says that they're coming down here on average a couple dozen times every week, even though no bombs have fallen in this area. But when the children come down here, the director says so many of them are still traumatized. So for instance, the other day it was raining outside, there was a clap of thunder, and a lot of the children screamed, the director said, because they thought it was a bomb. Aid continues to flow into Berehova. In the beginning of the war, it was largely just a stop for refugees fleeing to other countries. Now, they're staying put. Those who are arriving, uh, they want to stay for the long term. And it uh, certainly uh, requires different kind of uh, hosting. For Hungarian Baptist aid, more refugees means more need for everything else, including helping hands. It's not really like a war. For me, I feel like it's a genocide of Ukrainians. Pharmacist Daniel Nagrudny came to help from Philadelphia, the son of Ukrainian immigrants. But if people come together and come to the country and try to help out, then something actually gets done. It's definitely the spirit at a nearby church where a tiny volunteer operation has ramped up to hundreds of meals served every day as refugees decide to stay long term. 
The reasons can vary, everything from hope that the Ukrainian army will prevail to simply not wanting to live in a foreign country. For Diana, back at the school, the reason to not flee to neighboring Hungary was simple. She says, we feel like we're closer, somehow closer to my husband. I will go back the moment it's safe for my children. Matt Rivers, CNN, Berehov, Ukraine. More than 4.3 million people have fled the country since the war began. Millions more are still in Ukraine, but have been driven out of their homes, with agencies desperately working to get aid to those who may be stranded. It's a mammoth task. Kelly Clements joins us now. She's the United Nations Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees. Kelly, thank you for joining us. I think the humanitarian chief at the UN called it Ukraine's darkest hour which I think says much. What can you tell us about the current situation and the flows, the movement that you're seeing? Well, really, uh, Julia, it's it remains quite dynamic uh, inside the country. You you noted the number of people that are on the move, and uh, UN estimates now are over seven million, seven point one million, um, are displaced from their homes. But there remain some thirteen million people that are stranded, or that we're not able to access, or they're not able to leave where they are currently because of insecurity, because of shelling, for any number of reasons. So the situation in the country is is quite dire in some situations. In some areas of the country, we and other relief agencies can't reach. The government authorities are having difficulties delivering. And in other areas, things are, are the people are starting to return, starting to, to look at potentially what comes next. So every part of the country, um, there is a different situation currently inside Ukraine. I mean, it's so difficult to, to quantify this, I know. But do you have any sense of the, the number of people within Ukraine that have been displaced but you actually can't get to them and can't provide support. And whichever agency it is, is simply not being able to provide any form of of aid at all. Well, it's just a monumental task because yeah. the needs are huge from from clean water to drink to safe shelter. We just heard about uh, those living in basements and, and, and trying to keep themselves safe from the shelling and the like. Um, basic protection, uh, basic ways to be able to, to feed themselves and their families. And all of this is required in terms of those that may be displaced but unreachable. Um, that really remains a number that is impossible at this time to be able to to estimate. But we, with government authorities and others, are trying uh, with partners to reach as many as we can. As areas open up, we're trying to extend our reach. It's an enormous task, uh, but humanitarian partners and others are really committed to being able to reach as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. The situation, as you said, is one of the darkest hours, and it's quite dire. Mm. And, and brave people that are there too. Last week, the High Commissioner said to my colleague, uh, Becky Anderson, that you were struggling to communicate with some of your employees in Mariupol, and it's stuck with me ever since. I just wanted to ask, have you managed to make connection with with those people in in Mariupol so far? And, And if so, how are they doing? You know, in speaking with a representative um, in just the last uh, day or two, there was one colleague that we had not been able to reach during the entire uh, stretch of this war since February 24th. Um, And we located him yesterday uh, with his family. Um, So we have now accounted for for all of our colleagues. We still have, obviously, team members inside Mariupol, and the situation is quite dire. Uh, And as as Becky heard from from, uh, Filippo Grandi, you know, communication 
communication remains desperate, but us being able to get aid in, food aid in, people out uh, broadly as a, as a UN uh, and humanitarian community, it remains desperate. How are you advising those that are waiting on the borders and looking to come home and desperately want to come home back to their families, to their men, perhaps that have been left behind to fight. How are you advising them? We reported today that there's unexploded ordnance in, in Bucha. The situation, as you've reiterated many times now, is, is desperate even within Ukraine. Are you reluctant to advise people to go back home as desperate as they are to do so? Well, you know, the choice of where people move, what decisions they may take, it is entirely up to them. Mm -hmm. And we have seen time and time again that it's really not not a place to sleep uh, or a blanket or a warm piece of clothing that will keep people in a certain location. It's security and it's safety. And as your previous piece noted, people tend to stay very close to their homes. In this case, as we We've, we've talked about, we have a, a refugee population or people on the move that are primarily women and children, uh, aged people, those with disabilities, um, and they want to, they've been separated from husbands and brothers and sons, and they want to stay close to their homes. They want to be able to return as soon as they can. We have started seeing some small numbers of movements of people going back from neighboring countries into Ukraine, but this is a very dynamic situation, and even before the war, there was a lot of cross border movement. So the fact that people are staying close to border areas is not at all a surprise. We have to be able to find ways, however, to support them, to assist them. Um, and, and depending upon the, the decision that they make, if they decide to go to neighboring countries, supporting them in the neighboring countries with the local authorities and the volunteers, as we've heard, that have been incredibly generous. I know you're off on a, a tour as well, Slovakia, Hungary and the Czech Republic, I believe, um, imminently to go and assess the situation, the pressure that's being placed on, on neighbouring countries that, to your point, are stepping up to support. You've yes. also asked for donations. $1.7 billion is the sum. How are you doing with that fundraising? And, and how quickly do you believe you can raise that money and start dispersing it or continue to disperse? Well, I have to say we've really seen an outpouring of support from individual uh, individuals, the private sector, uh, governments, uh, in terms of the humanitarian needs inside Ukraine and the neighboring countries. But really, this is going beyond humanitarian need alone. These governments, these local communities, they need longer term support and they need more sustainable support. Their health, education, employment, labor, all of that are now stretched to the capacity, and that goes well beyond the humanitarian agency's uh, abilities to be able to support. And what we need more than anything, because depending upon how this war evolves, this will there will be a need for people to be supported in these communities for longer periods of time. And that means more support to local municipalities, to governments that really will require the support of the international community for some time to come. Hmm. Months and years of, of rebuilding in Ukraine when and if we get through this. Um, what's also become clear is the, the reception, I think, uh, and the treatment of Ukrainian refugees at times has differed from refugees from other nations, women, children in many cases, no less deserving of support. Can you just talk to that, please, and how we adopt greater tolerance, for want right. of a better phrase, in a world where there's so many in need? 
Well, and and Julia, you've just mentioned it. I mean, we are looking right now, before the war broke out, we are looking at forcibly displaced people totaling some 84 million around the world. Um, and now if you add the 11 0.4 million that are internally displaced and refugees now from the Ukraine situation, we're now at 95 million. Now that there are a large number of people in various parts of the globe that require this kind of support. <clears throat> we have a moment. We have a moment of human compassion where we've seen uh, doors of communities, doors of homes opened up to people in need, uh, refugees that require safety, support, basic sustenance, a way to be able to support their families. This isn't different from anywhere else in the world where there have been hosts and countries that have really opened up their borders to welcome people in, welcome people that need help, they need the compassion of the world, and this is a moment for us to be able to do more for others, uh, obviously related to the Ukraine situation, but far beyond. Yeah, the same compassion for all. Kelly Clements, UN Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees, thank you for your work and to you and your team as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, the number of fallen soldiers among Ukraine's military remains unclear. But what is certain is that the defenders have been paying a very high price. Ukraine has been forced to open a new cemetery in Lviv, as Sheikh Tapper reports. Grave diggers at Lykachiv Cemetery in Lviv, western Ukraine, today had to break ground in a fresh field to make room for the new war dead repurposing the cemetery's adjacent World War II memorial to find space for the influx. Today, it's Ukrainian Army Sergeant Ulbivok Yacheslav, 43, killed March 28th, and Private Hudzilak Lubamer, 33, killed on April 1st, both killed in Lohansk in the Donbass region, both men called to service after the Russians invaded. The soldiers' families started this grim day at the Saints Peter and Paul Garrison Church in Lviv. As their caskets passed the crowds on the way into the church, their loved ones wept for those whom they lost to Putin's invading army. The sounds of grief combined with that of prayer. Inside the formerly Jesuit church built in the 1600s, locals have wrapped historic statues to protect them from debris in case of expected Russian shelling. After the service, a military tribute as mourners paid respects and gave flowers to the families, flowers always in even numbers. Ruslan Stefanchuk, the presiding officer of the Ukrainian parliament, basically the speaker of the house, stopped by to honor the fallen. I come here and uh, all my honor and all my heart I, I put there. The Russia is guilty for everything, crimes, for everything, uh, genocide, which they do in my land. I want the whole world knows that uh, uh, we never forget for nobody. The church is right next to this monument to famous and beloved Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko, who was exiled by Russia's czar in the 1800s for advocating for Ukrainian independence from Russia and for human rights. One of Shevchenko's most famous poems, Zepovit or Testament, reads, When I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine, 
my tomb upon a grave mound high amid the spreading plain. Cars, vans, and buses full of mourners traveled the short distance to the cemetery. Caskets were unloaded, prayers offered. The ceremony of a burial has been simplified and made shorter in order not to decrease the morale and the spirit of our other military. Every day we have two, three uh, burials here in Lviv. That is the price for our victory. And the military paid tribute with instruments of both art and instruments of war. We say heroes never die. We bury the body, but the glory of these people will live forever in our hearts and in our history. A spokesman for the city would only say dozens when asked how many locals have been killed fighting to defend their homeland from the latest Russian threat. The spreading plain here, next to Lykachev Cemetery, spreading now in order to make room for the dead. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is speaking from Brussels. Let's listen to what he has to say. support to Ukraine so that Ukraine prevails in the face of Russia's invasion. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.